Uh, we're continuing today in a series that we're calling Experiencing Vocal Vitality, sorry, Spiritual Vitality, Freudian slip there, uh, and apologize for my voice ahead of time. We, and in the series, we've been looking at how we can actually experience and grow in authentic spiritual vitality. I mean, growing in, in wisdom, in joy, in peace, in power. And, and through the Holy Spirit, who we receive, who comes within us when we turn in faith to Jesus. And if you haven't been with us over the past weeks, you can watch and listen to those teachings on our website. Go to southviewchurch.com. I encourage you to do that if you haven't been here, because it'll help you understand this journey we're on together. But today, in our, our next step in the series, I, I want to look at two questions today. And so there's really two parts to today's teaching, two parts to this message. And again, it's prompted by two interrelated questions. I'll give you the questions ahead of time. The, the first question, really the first part of our teaching day, I want to reflect together on the question, what commonly hinders or quenches the Spirit's work in our life? You know, all this we've been talking about the Spirit, what might hinder the Spirit's work in my life? And then after that, I want to look at the second question, the second part of our teaching. We'll be asking together, okay, in light of that, what then is my part and what is the Holy Spirit's part in spiritual renewal, in spiritual growth in my life? That make sense? Okay, so today I want you to know, you're getting two messages for the price of one. <laughs> this is like Boxing Day all over again. How good is that? All right, so our first question, first half of our teaching really, let's consider this. What commonly hinders or quenches the work of the Spirit in my life? Now, let me give it just a bit of background to this question. I mean, it's intriguing as you read Scripture, and, and as you go to the book for De of Deuteronomy, for example, what Scripture says here. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and as we hear these words, remember, this is the Word of God. In Deuteronomy 4.24, this is what we read. The Lord your God is a consuming fire. Meaning, because this is repeated again and again in Scripture, there is something about fire that displays well what God is about. Scripture repeats it again and again. It's a theme repeated throughout Scripture. And in fact, go to the New Testament. We think of that time when John the Baptist started his ministry. He started telling people about the Messiah, about Jesus who was to come. And how does he describe the Messiah? He says, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to baptize you with fire and with what? Rather, it baptized you with the Holy Spirit. Gave it away. There you go. And with fire. There, he gave it to you. That, that's what he said, with fire. And then we think in Acts 2, that powerful scene on Pentecost, when the Spirit comes on the upper room to Christ's followers, and he's expressing their presence with tongues of fire over their heads. Again and again in Scripture, as we read through this, fire is one of the most common metaphors in Scripture of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so it shouldn't really surprise us then that when the Apostle Paul is writing a church in a town called Thessalonica, this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says this, do not quench the Spirit's fire. Now, to understand what this is saying here, the other translations put it slightly different. One translation says, quench not the manifestations of the Spirit. 
Another translation says, do not extinguish the Spirit's fire. And still another says, do not stifle the inspiration of the Spirit. So this verse tells us two things, friends. First, for one again, it tells us that the work of God in our midst, understand, is something like fire. That there is some, it is spreading, it is moving, it is powerful. At times it is wild and unpredictable. And secondly, it tells us this as well. That we can inhibit and limit. We can quench the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and in our church community. I mean, think of this. The fire of the Holy Spirit can be diminished. The Holy Spirit's working can be opposed by believers, by us. That's why Paul put it another way. He wrote to the church in Ephesus and listen to what he said to them. This is how he put it there. This is Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we ask the question, what does it mean to grieve the Spirit? What does it mean to grieve God, like it said here? And understand this, it doesn't just mean to resist the Spirit. To grieve here means that God's heart is filled with pain. It is full of sorrow. Remember earlier in the series, we've been looking at that our, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are actually indwelt by the person of the Spirit of Christ. Like, like Paul says in Colossians 1, Christ in you is a hope of glory. And the Holy Spirit, remember, it's not just some vague force. It's not just some spiritual power. The Holy Spirit is a person. So when you and I, when we grieve the Spirit, we cause pain in the heart of God. That's why the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon gave this exhortation. The gift of the comforter, that's the spirit, was not temporary and the display of his power was not to be once seen and no more. The Holy Ghost is here and we ought to expect his divine working among us. And if he does not so work, we should search ourselves to see what it is that hinders and whether there may not be something in ourselves which hinders him. So if we have turned in faith to Jesus... And, and thereby received his Holy Spirit, we wonder what then might keep his fullness from being expressed within us. So I want to look at this. I want to just quickly look at three hindrances that really might hold back the fullness of the Spirit in our lives. Now, there are many more, many more than just three, but I want to look at three that we might battle in our lives and, and look at these together. So how do we quench the Spirit? Let's look at this. Well, Right after saying, don't quench the spirit, listen to Paul's exhortation in 1 Thessalonians 5.20. He says, don't quench the spirit, and then he says this, do not despise prophecies. Okay, so this points to one of the ways that we can quench or hinder the work of the spirit by despising spiritual gifts. We can put it that way. In fact, read that phrase with me, would you? Despising spiritual gifts. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting when you look at the context of, of Paul's letter to the Corinthians and then the one to the Thessalonians, one of the two, that they were examples of two opposite errors in the church. In Corinth, they, they had just become enamored with, they were abusing the gift of tongues. 
So Paul says to them, hey, desire all the gifts. Desire the gift of prophecy in particular. But in Thessalonica, they'd kind of gone to the opposite extreme. Because in Thessalonica, there were some individuals there that were abusing the gift of prophecy. So the church leaders there said, forget it, that's it, no more prophecy. And they had completely repressed some spiritual gifts. So Paul therefore writes to them, don't despise prophecies. And, and that tells us something, bringing all of that to us. Two of the errors that we can fall into the church, uh, for one, is lack of spiritual oversight regarding the use of spiritual gifts, like, like in Corinth, just letting things go wild. But then the other extreme, or other error can be, over control. Uh, kind of forbidding the use of spiritual gifts, even when they're used bi biblically, like the Thessalonians were doing. I mean, I, I would guess this. I would guess we're all likely aware of ministries that have really used spiritual gifts in a false or unbiblical manner, right? Yeah, you've probably seen that. So Paul would say in that case, well, guard against that. Yes, certainly. But don't let that lead you to therefore abandon the biblical use of gifts. Because if you do that, you will be quenching, hindering the Spirit's fire among you. I mean, think of what Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy. This is in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. Paul says, I remind you, Timothy, fan into flame, fan into full fire the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Can I give us an encouragement today? If you are a follower of Jesus, would you fan into flame the spiritual gifts that God has blessed you with? And if you're not certain, try using different ones to find out what your gifts might be. May it be the case that increasingly the fire of the Spirit is expressed in us by his spiritual gifts being used among us. Amen? As an encouragement in that way, the great British missionary, fantastic cricket player as well, C.T. Studd, listen to what he wrote many years ago. How little chance the Holy Spirit has nowadays. The churches and missionary societies have so bound him in red tape, they practically ask him to sit in a corner while they do the work themselves. That's a good word for us. Because despising spiritual gifts, friends, it quenches the Spirit. And then a second way that, that we can hinder and quench the spirit is simply this. We, we could say it's disobedience. Would you just say the word? Disobedience. I mean, one of the ways that we can hinder the work of the spirit is by resisting God, by, by turning from him in disobedience. Meaning this. Meaning, if there's an area in my life where I know I'm disobeying God, where I know I'm going against his revealed will to us. I don't need to wonder why I fail to see his power expressed in my life, right? I mean, for example, one example of that disobedience. In fact, let's go back to Ephesians. I mean, we read already what Paul said in Ephesians chapter four, verse 30. And, and he said there, do not grieve the spirit of God, right? Then look at the first encouragement he gives right after that exhortation, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, 
along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so we ask the question, why would Paul jump on that immediately after saying, do not grieve the spirit? Because friends, be aware of this. In the body of Christ, bitterness, wrath, malice towards one another, it is a hindrance to the work of the spirit. I mean, Jesus clearly knew this. In, in fact, listen to his words that he gave to the people in that day. We can apply to us in our own day. This is from the Gospel of Matthew. This is Matthew 5, verse 23. Jesus said this. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, let's put it in our way. So if you're coming into a worship gathering and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Leave the worship service and go. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Then come and offer worship. Friends, I am sure nearly all of us, I mean, we want to see the Holy Spirit moving great power in our worship gatherings. I'm sure. But let's be aware of this from what Scripture says. If there are a number of us harboring bitterness in our hearts towards one another, another believer, that actually hinders what the Spirit is seeking to do among us until we're reconciled to one another. Our disobedience to God, bitterness being one expression of it, it it can hinder the Spirit's work in our lives and in our church body. And then thirdly, a, a third way we can quench the Spirit and for this, I want us to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. This is, Matt in, I'm sorry, in Gospel of Mark. In, in Mark chapter 6, if you want to turn there, Jesus is just beginning his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth. So he's ministering in a place where people know him. They knew him since childhood. They know his family. And look at how they responded. This is Mark 6, verse 3. And they, there in Nazareth, they took offense at Jesus. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their what? Unbelief. Man, can you imagine Jesus coming among us? And can you imagine if what he was stunned at was our lack of faith? That's what it was in Nazareth. And here's the reality. Another way they, we can quench, extinguish the Spirit's fire and power is through unbelief. Let's just say the word. Unbelief. Because all of the ministry that Jesus ever did, all of it was by the power of the Spirit. Everything Jesus did was through the Spirit's power. So in Nazareth, consider this. It was likely not there that Jesus was kind of unable to perform miracles, but rather that he chose not to. Maybe put it this way. He was not freed to because of their lack of faith, because of their unbelief. And we ask the question, why? Well, as we look at Scripture, the Holy Spirit chooses to work where there's faith. So I need to be asking of myself, I should be asking myself, okay, where am I not trusting God in my life? Where do I not believe his promises? Where do I not trust his guidance for myself? Because, to put it bluntly, my unbelief 
can hinder the Spirit's work. Okay. Now, I realize all of that is pretty sobering. And really, it should be sobering. And, and don't share it as a way to guilt us, but rather, we should be just aware of these realities. But I think all of that, it also leads us to our second question day, to kind of the second half of our teaching. And, and our second question is simply this. Okay, so having considered how we can quench or hinder the work of the Spirit, okay, what then is my part? And what is the Holy Spirit's part in spiritual renewal, spiritual growth, transformation in my life? Let's consider this. I mean, you might know that psychologists say that in marriages, one of the primary areas of conflict is what's called division of labor conversations. Have one of those recently? It, it's dealing with the question, okay, whose job is it to cook meals? I mean, who's gonna take out the trash? Who's gonna mow the lawn? Who's gonna change the diapers? Who's gonna stay at home with the kids? And, and they tell it, every couple needs to work out those realities. And the thing is, as they tell us, most spouses go into marriage expecting, we'll just do it my way because it's the best way. That's what they expect. In, in fact, when Jillian and our, when our two kids were both under two years old, we particularly had conversations about division of labor because we had different expectations. And I can say, a lot of those conversations, they weren't happy conversations. I wouldn't call them that. But over time, we got, I got clarity. <laughs> Let me, can I put another? I was given clarity. Now again, the reason I bring this up is that a really significant question when it comes to spiritual vitality, spiritual growth, spiritual renewal is, so how does Christ get formed in me? How, how does this work? I mean, whose job is this? Is it the Holy Spirit's job? Is it my job? Now we're gonna look at this a bit more next weekend, but this weekend what I'd like to do in, in the second part of this message, I just kind of want to paint, real quick, three pictures. And, and two of them, I don't think are biblical. Two of them, I think if you follow them, will kind of lead to really unhealthy paths. And, and they do that for a lot of people. And, and then we're going to consider a third way, a way that I think, according to God's word, is the way this actually works. And the payoff for this fully is going to come next weekend, so I hope you can come back. But today, I just want to get us to get these pictures clear, all right? And so what we have, sorry, three aquatic images for us today to kind of help us picture and remember what we're hearing today. So three pictures, that, and they represent three ways of viewing how we partner with the Holy Spirit in our spiritual growth, all right? All right, so first picture. Okay, this picture represents some people's approach to spiritual growth. Here's the picture, and it, if you can't see it, it's a canoe with a paddle in it. And, and you might call people that follow this way uh, paddlers. I mean, these are people who say, I'm going to paddle my way to holiness. I mean, they might even rightly say, oh, I understand salvation, uh, my coming to faith in Jesus, that was totally a gracious gift of God. It was God's work in my life. It, all that was God. But then they say, but sanctification, 
growing in holiness, Christ-likeness, that's really all my job. And so I'm going to kind of, by sheer effort of my will, by sheer human willpower, I'm going to make myself holy. And, and so to support their perspective, some people with this perspective might, for example, turn to the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, they would point to these words where it says, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy because I'm holy. Or, or they might go to the book of Philippians, to that letter, and, and they might take Philippians 2 and read it really totally out of context where it says these words. Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation and do that with fear and trembling. So those holding this perspective would say, okay, it, God's job is to make sure he's holy. My job now that I've come to faith in him is to make sure I'm holy. So they wake up in the morning and they start paddling and they paddle all day long. And, and so spiritual life for them becomes in some ways, they view it like a contest. I mean, who can memorize the most verses, who can have the most regular quiet times, who can pray the longest. And understand this, there was a group comprised of a lot of paddlers in Jesus' day. You know what they were called? Pharisees, yeah. And they were religious leaders. And so they got up in the morning and they started paddling. And so they memorized scripture, they fasted, they prayed, they studied scripture, they kept all the biblical law, all really good things. But they just paddled all day long. And it was withering to them. And what we see in scripture is it choked the love out of them. Because you see, when the problem with paddling is if it goes well, if you are paddling really well, it tends to lead to self-righteousness and to pride, to kind of arrogance and smugness. It just leads to bad stuff. And if you're not paddling very well, it tends to lead to guilt or to shame, to, to feeling like you're in a rut or that your spiritual life is just mechanical or you're just tired and exhausted of spiritual stuff. And, and I would guess this. I, I would guess today some of you have been paddling for quite a while and maybe you get tired in it. And let me be clear, if you're trying to paddle your way to holiness, if you in some sense think it's all my job, I'll tell you, it doesn't work well. I mean, and again, that's one way of approaching and viewing how we grow spiritually. Okay, now let's do a second picture. This is another picture. It represents a whole other approach to spiritual life. It's just a life raft. There it is. And so I, I kind of want you to picture people in this thing, maybe just going down whitewater rapids, all right? Just kind of holding on for dear life. And that's what they're doing. They're not, they're not moving themselves ahead at all. Or, or maybe do this. Picture people in the Titanic when it went down, they hopped in these things, didn't have any oars. Or if you were Kate Winslet, you jumped on a door, something like that. <laughs> Same kind of thing. Okay, they're in there and they're just drifting. They're just waiting for something to be done to them, for somebody or something to kind of come along, move them along, take care of them. They're just kind of drifting. And, and there are some people who really, they approach the spiritual life this way. That's how they see it. I mean, they, they say, essentially, they might not verbalize it this way, but essentially what they think is, there's nothing I can do. 
for transformation, I mean, it's, it's all up to God. I can't do anything at all. Any human effort I try to put in this, that's really opposed to God's grace. And so to support their perspective, that they might go to the book of Romans. They might go to Romans chapter 7 and read verse 18 out of context, where Paul writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I mean, I can't do anything. I can't carry this out. There's an author, Philip Anthony. He writes about growing up in a church that had this kind of perspective. And he said in prayer meetings, people used to pray because it sounded like a real spiritual thing for them to pray, God, I just want to be nothing. Just make me nothing. Let me have no actions of my own, no thoughts of my own. Let me have no ideas of my own. And Anthony says, God seemed to answer their prayers because they never did have any ideas of their own. (laughs) And, And what happens is, it's people who approach spirituality just by drifting along. And, and, and really, they say, there's nothing human effort can do in this. This is all about God. And, and understand, this isn't a new idea. It's been around for a long time. In fact, back in the 17th and 18th century, there was a group of spiritualists called Quietists. Madame Guion, maybe you've heard that name. She was one of them. And they taught this very type of teaching and approach to the spiritual life. That we approach it this way. In complete passivity, let go and let God. That's their approach. But understand, eventually what typically happens is these kind of individuals start making all kinds of excuses for not doing the one thing that God calls us to do. To pursue righteousness. They were called to do that, to pursue spiritual growth, to pursue Christ being formed in me. Because they're just spiritually drifting, passively. And, and then what happens is they tend to put all the responsibility for their own spiritual development on other people. They just kind of abdicate personal responsibility. And so they might say things like, well, if my small group leader just led better, then I'd really grow spiritually. Or, or they might say, if, if I wasn't so busy, if work wasn't so demanding, then I could grow spiritually. Or, or they might say, if, if my husband would give me the spiritual leadership that I tell him to give me, then I could grow spiritually. Over and over I tell him, start leading me spiritually. But he never gives me the leadership that I need. And so I'm not growing spiritually because it's my spouse's fault. And so friends, if, if you're here today and if... If you're just drifting, if your idea is in some sense that all human effort is kind of opposed to God's grace, understand, you've made the mistake of confusing passivity with trust and humility. And maybe if you're honest, you'd say, I've just been drifting for a long time. Okay, then third. And I want to give you a verse, a a verse to take with us through this week. And it's one of the great statements in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit. And it comes to us from Jesus. And and this is in John chapter 3. In John 3, and Jesus is referring here to the wind. Now understand, in the Greek language, the word we translate as wind was the original Greek word pneuma. Want to say it with me? It's also the word that we translate as spirit. 
And so understand in John 3, Jesus is kind of, has this play on words thing going on here. When he says this in verse 8, Jesus said, the wind, the pneuma, blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Okay, so Jesus says, the wind, the, the, the pneuma, it, it blows wherever it wants to. I mean, the wind's in control, essentially. You don't control the wind, right? I mean, you hear the sound of it, but you don't know fully where it came from. You don't know where it's going to go. I mean, there's no telling. It's kind of unpredictable. There's kind of a mystery to the wind in this way. And then there's this tremendous phrase. Jesus says, so it is. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That that's the way the spiritual life works for everyone who is being recreated, revitalized, transformed by the Spirit. And, and so the picture that I'd like for you to take home is this one. Here's the picture. I mean, th th this is a better picture for us of how God intends to work spiritually in our lives. It, it's a windsurfer. In fact, to me, it looks like Pastor Fernando in Cayman Islands. I, I just <laughs> ask him if it's him. But that, that kind of picture together. And, and we understand this. Okay, when a windsurfer is out on the water, it's real clear to whomever the windsurfer is, I can't make myself go anywhere. I got no paddle, no oars, no motor. I, I, I'm, if I'm going to move at all, it's going to happen because of the wind. I mean, it's just kind of a gift in that way. I mean, I don't make it happen. I'm not in control. So there's kind of a mystery to this deal in that sense. I mean, when I move, it's a gift. So there's really, there's no room for pride or arrogance. It's, it's something of a humbling thing. But along with that, though, it's not a passive deal, right? A windsurfer better not be passive because there's a plenty that a windsurfer has to do. I mean, for one, a windsurfer needs to be able to discern, okay, where on the water is the wind blowing? And how do I align myself with the wind? So, so a good windsurfer has to be able to look out on the water and tell from the appearance of the water where the evidence of the wind is. Okay, I see the wind blowing there. That, that's where the wind is, uh, right there. And, and then the windsurfer also has to know certain things. A windsurfer has to know, how then do I position my body to, to balance it just right? How do I align the sail to catch the full gust of the wind without throwing me over? How do I do that? I mean, a windsurfer has to know a lot of things, and he needs to be able to align himself or herself with the movement of the wind. You know, there's a word you can call to describe this. It's actually a theological word at times. It is synergistic, meaning it is not monergistic. It's not one energy. It is synergy. It is two energies. It is a wind and the windsurfer working in synergy with each other. And what's interesting is how the Apostle Paul describes the spiritual life. Listen to how he describes it. Again, let's go back to Philippians. This is in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. And Paul writes, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, because, for, it's God who works in you. As you are doing that, it is God is working in you, both to will. He's changing your desires and to work. He's accomplishing it for his good pleasure. Because here's the thing, the Christian life, life in the pneuma, the spirit, it does require effort from us. It does. It is synergistic, but it's effort in which we're empowered by the Holy Spirit who is within us. I mean, our sanctification is a process we're in. You could say we are co-workers with God. 
We are joining with the Spirit. And he's empowering us as we're doing that. And Jesus says this, and so it is. So it is. That's the way it works. Now that you're in the kingdom and the Spirit is available to you, this is the way it works. So your part, my part, comes down to this. Friends, instead of paddling or, or just drifting, it's, it's really asking this question. Okay, and again, we're gonna talk about this more next weekend. But I wanna give you this question to reflect on. It's not a formula, just a question. Where's the wind of the Spirit blowing freshly in my life? In your life, where's it blowing? Where is the wind of the Spirit blowing in my life right now? Because understand this, wise disciples, people in whom Christ is being formed, people who actually grow are transformed, they're able to discern the operation of the Spirit in their lives. And in fact, remember how we define or describe what a disciple of Jesus is here? We put it this way. Read this with me, would you? A disciple is one who is learning from Jesus to know the Father's voice, follow in obedience, and teach others to the same by the power of the Spirit. So we believe this according to Scripture. We believe from God's word that we can increasingly come to discern and recognize and then follow the voice and leadings of God, the voice of the Spirit in my life as he guides and prompts me. Okay, how do we do that? Let me just expand on this a bit. You're kind of using our windsurfer image. I'll tell you how. Again, consider, how does a windsurfer recognize where the wind's blowing again? He, for one, he looks at the water. He looks for the evidence of the wind. He, he looks for the surface of the water. Where is wind blowing? And, and over time, he increasingly is able to recognize it. And so understand this. In a similar way, a follower of Jesus is able to discern the work and leading of the Spirit in this way. The wind of the Spirit always tends to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Where is the wind blowing? It's where the fruit of the Spirit is. Okay, what again is the fruit of the Spirit? This is how Paul puts it. This is in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So let's understand this. We're talking a lot about the Spirit. The clearest markings of the presence and work of the Holy Spirit are not first acts of power, nor signs and wonders. Those may or may not come. But the Holy Spirit always brings love, joy, peace, patience, guidance, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So therefore, in light of that, we consider that, we want to ask ourselves this question then. Okay, we look and go, what is going on in my life? What, what's the activity, the spiritual practice, the relationship, or the experience where when I engage in it, I find myself increasingly growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Well, where is that in my life? I mean, what's the practice or activity when I engage in it, I find myself over time becoming a more loving person. I find myself growing in joy and peace. I just encourage you to ask yourself these kind of questions. And, and around that, what is the activity or activities or maybe the practice, a relationship experience 
that when I'm part of it, I start to recognize that sin, turning from God, looks increasingly distasteful to me. What would that be for you? I mean, some of you, you've been paddling a real long time, and maybe you're tired. Can I just say, stop paddling. And maybe some of you have been drifting a long time. And, and maybe you're at this point, you're apathetic and bored. And let me likewise say to you, stop drifting. Instead, do this. Sail with the Spirit, friends. Sail with the Spirit. And, and ask yourself the question, where is the wind of the Spirit blowing in my life? And how do I align myself with the wind? You know, as we talk about all this, I don't know if any of you are thinking, okay, this Holy Spirit stuff, that, that's like turbo Christian stuff. It's not for me, I'm just not like that. Uh, listen to Jesus' words that he might give to you along with that. This is from the Gospel of Luke. This is in Luke chapter 11, Luke 11 and verse 13. Jesus said, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to whom? Turbo Christians? No. Say it with me. Those who ask him. We're invited just to ask him. And next weekend, friends, we're going to pick it up right there, all right? R right there with the filling of the Holy Spirit. So I hope you can come back next weekend as we look at that together. And, and now, let me lead us in prayer as we move into this week with these realities, all right? Let's pray together. And Father, we pray, oh, would you keep this from becoming just an academic exercise for us, Father? Would you lead us in your ways? We, we long that your spirit would feel free to move fully in our individual lives, Father, and in our church community. So keep us attuned to where we might be hindering or quenching you. Thank you for the grace and forgiveness you offer us, even in that. And I pray, Father, that you would guide us and by the leading of your spirit to know how to align our lives to join with the wonderful gusts of your spirit. To this we pray, and again, all God's people say, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, friends?